Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by the Bridge Initiative and FI360 Project. I'm Tara McBride. This month, Alex and I interviewed Melissa Ritchie, who is the Vice President and Market Managing Director of Institutional Asset Management at PNC Capital Advisors. That might be her fancy title today, but in our former lives, Melissa was just my boss. I was a new manager and an emotionally charged new mom who was working out how to balance the stress of work and home and marriage and self-care and, and, and. Melissa was exactly the person I needed at the exact right time to gain confidence in myself as a manager and as a human. She earned my respect and that of our colleagues by knowing when and how to be direct or tough, vulnerable or sensitive. She has never apologized for who she is, like when she proudly stood shoulder to shoulder with an Ivy League grad questioning her worth as a Slippery Rock alum. And she has never compromised on what she knows to be right, like when it comes to managing people with integrity. Alex and I walked away from our conversation with Melissa feeling fully empowered. We know you will too. Let's get to it. Here's our conversation for a little louder now with Melissa Ritchie. I am just so excited for these women in particular to meet you. Just, I, you know how much I care for you and how great I think you are. So I'm excited to dig in a little bit on like how you feel about the industry, where you've come from, all that stuff. So let's start with, how did you get involved in financial services? Taking the old school. (laughs) When I was in Slippery Rock, I went to that college to be a teacher. And I always wanted to help people. I used to go into my basement and teach to the dog. I just loved doing that, right? And then I realized as I got older that children are terrible and parents are rotten. And it's just somebody has to die in Pennsylvania to get a job. And I thought, you know, maybe I should be a business executive. I had no idea what that was. But I envisioned myself in a boardroom with a briefcase, either telling people what to do or being a part of big decisions, right? So that's, in my mind, what that meant. And my cousin was getting into trading stocks on Wall Street. And he was saying how exciting it was and how interesting it was. And I thought, well, finance, you learn how to make money, you learn how to manage money. So it all just connected with a couple of people that I interacted with, changed my major to business. And my sophomore year at Slippery Rock, I interned for Merrill Lynch. And I worked for a female vice president who's still with Merrill Lynch. No kidding. Yeah, I ran back into her probably about two years ago. She's still there. And I love the energy of it. Everybody looked great. Everybody spoke well weren't a lot of women and I thought hmm even at a young age I thought that's something I could do and um, in the internship there was a gentleman who sat beside me and all these kids were from prestigious schools and I went to Slippery Rock and he sat down next to me and he said oh where'd you go where are you going to school I'm like Slippery Rock he's like I go to Brown and I said well that's great because I'm sitting right next to you and I said it just like that so from a young age I had a very confident spark in me to not take anybody's crap Mm -hmm. ever and I thought what an arrogant jerk that I got this internship just like you did I had to apply I had to be interviewed I was picked and I'm sitting right here like who are you to tell me where I should be sitting or go to school Mm -hmm. so that just kind of kicked it all off and then after I graduated American Express Financial Advisors I got involved with them because they were one of the first firms to offer a training program so I was one of two women in the North Hills of Pittsburgh where everybody else was in South Hills so it's kind of like an experimental program and being one of two women, that was really difficult in 1997. I mean, that's 20 years ago. The industry is much different now. But that's where I learned everything. So that's where I learned cold calling, shaking hands, networking, all of that. And it was hardcore. Um, we had Friday night phone clinics that we had to attend that were mandatory. Uh, they would put all your calls up on the board and they would talk about the things that you did. You'd have to role play constantly. And then Saturdays, we had phone clinics from 9 to noon every Saturday. 
and I did that for almost two years. So I made it through the program, run, won an award, did really well, and then you take all the training and you leave. And that's kind of the next evolution of the career. And for about two or two years, I was working as an independent contractor then, and I realized that's not what I wanted to do. I'm like, I want a 401k, I want benefits, I want stability, I want to make more money. I don't want to work, you know, 40 hours in a day, I just don't want to do it. I did. I loved it, but I didn't didn't feel passionate enough to start my own practice, my own business, because I saw what it took, and I was just smart enough to realize that wasn't me, so that's when I joined Fergasso mm-hmm. in 2001, I think it was, and I started out as a financial planning analyst, went up to financial advisor, got my CFP certification, eventually managed the advisors, and left that company's EVP, which was pretty much as high as I could go in that company, and then joined PNC a year ago, so that's in short the journey. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> really? Because it doesn't yeah. sound incredible when no. I say it back. I'm like, oh. My, oh, no. My favorite, my favorite part of that story, there are lots of my favorite parts of your life, but my favorite part of that story is that you it, you were so confident in yourself early. Yeah. Like you knew. And somebody with a, a pedigree sits down next to you and says, where, where are you coming from? And you were like, slippery rock. Yeah. And I earned my spot just like you Absolutely. did. Absolutely. I love that. And you've always had that. Whenever we've worked together, that's always been your yes. your um, approach to things. So where does that come from? How did you hmm. become that person? Or did, it yes, just tell, tell us your secret. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that confidence. It's really funny because I did a sales training class at PNC, which was really fun. That was the first time I got to show them what I could do. And what I said in there, and I didn't realize I was going to say it because I never talk on script. And I said, if I could give everybody in the room one present, and if I could give my girls just one present every year, it would be the same every year. It would be a box. It would be wrapped up. And inside, it would be confidence. And I can't give it to anybody. I feel like I was absolutely born with it. My father is a Marine. He was very authoritative. He was very confident. Just didn't give a crap what anybody thought ever. My mom, very quiet, very shy, almost hermit-like. So I got wired like my father's. I can't sit there and say that there were experiences that I had that made me who I was. I think I was hardwired that way, and I can appreciate people that aren't, because that's the other half of my family. That's my mother. That's my brother. I grew up that way, looking at them and realizing that I had that, and I never had any issues. Like, in school, in life, nothing. Never got bullied because of it. So that's what I'm trying to teach my kids, is that half the battle is you just can't care what people think. Who are they to judge you? Like, really? I, I find that fascinating why somebody would care. A, what a complete stranger thought. I care what people that I love and respect and trust. I care immensely what you think, but that's a small group. Mm-hmm. The rest of them, I don't really care because they haven't earned that ability to judge me. That's how I feel about it. So I can judge my kids because I'm their mother, right? <laughs> I'm going to help them. Yeah. But I can't say to my kids, like, be confident, but you better believe I'm talking to them all the time. Like, when you get up and give that speech half the room they really aren't thinking about you they're thinking about well I'm really hungry and boy I hope that heel on my shoe you know they're just thinking about everything else Mm -hmm. so what do you care what they think so I'm trying so hard to tell my girls but I don't know how to do that I don't know how you teach confidence other than keep telling people you got this be fearless don't worry about it just reinforcing it so I do try to do that in my job now yeah well I can say you know for those who don't know Melissa was my direct supervisor when we were at Fregasso and um, I was managing people for the first time and Melissa was managing me, managing people. So we had lots of long conversations about how to handle things and um, you know the, the conversations that we would have were exactly what you're saying because I'm a much more emotional person. You're, you're, you let those things just roll off. I let those things fester and implant in me and I can't let them go 
and I just feel like you were always, you were very good at helping me, I think the role playing, which I, I hate doing, but it helped me understand and anticipate what could come from a conversation that might be intimidating to That's me, right? right? So, right. Like I, so talk about some of the things that you, conversations you've had with your kids that have been kind of tough where you've had like one of your daughters, she has two daughters, one of her daughters comes home and somebody was being mean to a friend, which I think we've talked about oh, before. Yeah, I've had those instances at school and I've always tried to be calm first. That's always my approach. Even though inside I'm so mad, I want to crack at that, you know, to see what's going on. I'm smart enough to know that we're all different. We handle things differently. So I try to listen, ask questions and then listen. And then I say, okay, so how would you, like, how did you handle it? And then she would tell me how she handled it. And I'd say, okay, can I tell you how, what I would do? She's like, yes, please. And then I would say, this is exactly what I would do. So we talk about those things where I don't come out and just say, look, you go in there. I want her to come to that conclusion on her own. And I say her because it's mostly Casey, my youngest. No issues there, A, because she's a little younger, and B, just her personality. I think nothing even happens to her yet. But Casey's more with the girls and the drama and all that stuff. And I think through our conversations, I can just tell she feels supported that if she needs to stand up for herself, I'll be the first one at school praising the suspension if she did what I think she should do, which is sticking up for herself. So my kids don't put up with anybody's crap. And I've probably talked to them about that since they were going into school. So I feel really good about that. But there are conversations that are they're tough. They're tough for me because I know what I would do, and I wouldn't even let them get there with me. But I have to back up and let them feel it out on their own. So that's what you really want is you want everybody to come to the conclusion that you would come to, but to do it in their own way mm-hmm. and on their own terms. And I think that's what managers do. It's the same thing in business. You talk it through with people. Well, how do you think you should handle it? I think that's great. But consider this. I had this experience and this is what I did and here's how it worked out. Maybe that can help you. Do you want to role play it out? And everyone says no. And I say, great, let's do that. <laughs> right? You have to force the uncomfortable and then you get very comfortable, and that breeds confidence. I quote you all the time. She does all the time. She really does. I do. Just you know that you just saying that thing about you know you have to be uncomfortable. It is a hundred percent true. You have to go through these moments where it's not it's not what you like. It's it makes you feel not good in order to grow and make space and allow yourself that room to become different and better and yeah. stronger. So I just, I love your approach because it's really empowering that you let people find their path themselves with a little bit of a nudge toward what, at least in your opinion, would be the conclusion that you think that they want to come to. But letting them do that on their own, I think, is so important because it gives them the tools that they need to do that in later. their own way. Right. You have to be you through everything you do. And that's the other thing that I talked about in the sales training class, as I said. You don't have to use fancy words. You don't have to be different in front of certain people. You have to be aware if you're with clients and try to match styles. But be you because people will see right through it anyway. So just be you and be the best you you can be. And that's it. And if it's not good enough, then that's on them, <laughs> not you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm laughing because I told her that yesterday. <laughs> good. Yeah. That was good advice. I like Thank it. You. Thank you. I told, I told her that the best compliment I ever received was um, – one of my previous co-workers told me that I'm always exactly myself in every situation. That's so good. And I was like, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. Right? <laughs> yeah. I think that's great. 
yeah, you can walk you can walk out of here knowing that you didn't compromise who you are yeah. and what you believe in just mm-hmm. to achieve something. Right. But you still achieved something and maintained who you were. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. So what lessons has your work life taught you? You know, I actually thought about that question before I came here, so let me see what I wrote down. Because <laughs> I think that could have been one that I struggled with. Believe it or not, I should prepare for this a I, little bit. I do believe you. Yeah. What was it? I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> Once in a while. Uh, let's see. What was it? Questions. What number? Three. It's blank. Can <laughs> <laughs> you look at that? That is so funny. I wrote everything else. Because that was the hardest one. Maybe. Yeah. You should (laughs) not shy away from the hard stuff either. What has work taught me? Um, Probably that I have to be diplomatic. If someone like me is very, very driven and I see things really quick, so for me I have to be careful to appreciate other people's differences and how they approach things. So it's taught me to slow down. It's taught me to keep my emotions in check. I had a much worse temper when I was little. And I see that in my daughter, who's nine. She's got a lot of my personality. And it took me years to rein in my temper, but work, I actually think it helped me do that. Because you can't fly off the spout all the time. You can't. And you can't get mad at people all the time. It's a very miserable existence. And you'll get fired. I would lose every job I ever had. So I I did start to learn through managing people when I started that, that you, you don't make any decisions when you're emotional. You walk away. I've always said that to Tara, that I would sleep on something. And if I was still mad the next day, I'd go at it. And if I wasn't as mad, maybe I'd consider letting it go. So I think work has taught me that you have to be in control of your emotions, or you can't manage people, you probably can't manage yourself, and you're going to get fired. So that's a big one. Yeah, when did you start managing people? Like, when in your career did you become a manager? Because I don't know if you managed before you were at Fregasso, but you were put into a really interesting situation when you were there. Yeah. The type of man to talk to do. (laughs) Yeah, it was funny because I had both of my daughters and I was part-time. And I was working three days a week and I was noticing through measurements and other things. I said, wow, I'm doing pretty well for three days a week. And I was wickedly efficient because I had to balance two little girls under the age of two at the time and work and clients and all that stuff. And I remember the president of the company and the owner calling me and saying, hey, we want to meet with you. And I'm like, oh, geez, what did I do? You know, this is going to be terrible. And they're like, you're doing so well part-time that you're running circles around some of the folks that are full-time, and we'd like you to step into a management position. And I said, what about my family? You know, what does this mean? And I thought about it, and I said, okay, I'll do it, but at four days a week. That takes a lot of guts, right, to tell the owner of the company and the president that this is what you want. But I was smart enough to know that I had something that they needed and why not ask for it? If they could, if they said no, if they would have said no, I most likely would have stayed part-time mm-hmm. with my kids. But because they said yes, which I really appreciated and I was thankful and I still am to this day, that's how I got into managing, managing people. I can tell you I had zero training, none, zip. Um, and the people that I saw in that company who managed people were not people that I wanted to emulate. My style, my personality, everything was very different than them and I thought, I can't be them. So I'm going to have to figure this out or this isn't going to work. I did take a leadership academy class. I went for maybe six or nine months. I can't remember. And you're in a room with other managers, some new, some veterans. I found that to be very helpful, but nothing's like the experiences that you have. You trust your gut. You do what you think is right. You're transparent and you're honest. And the rest, I just learned. I didn't have it. One of the questions you asked was about mentorship. Never had one. 
never in my life. I never had anybody that sat down with me and said, this is how I've managed people. This is how you should. Nobody. I did everything on my own. Every failure I had was on my own. Every success I went, oh, okay, I guess that went well. No one told me (laughs) that I did well. So I went very alone. And I think that's how I've lived my life and successfully alone, if that makes any sense. And maybe that kind of goes into the the part of, like, you can't care what people think. I had nobody that would tell me what they thought. So I didn't have time to care about if I thought I was doing the right thing. I just had to keep moving and keep going. And it comes down to principle for me. What is right and what is wrong? And that's really easy to manage through. So I probably managed uh, maybe four or five years at Fergasso. And then now I'm in a management position here. So I did make that that leap from being an individual producer working with clients, but once I got the taste of management, which really was affecting an outcome, that's what it was to me, having a seat at the table saying, no, this is what I think is right, and listen to what I'm saying, I have a voice here, and that I can impact a greater group of people, and then what I started to realize, do you know how many people can't do that? Do you know how many people can't say what they believe and just say it? They have to couch it, they have to frame it, they take 20 minutes to get to the point, and I was like, oh my gosh, and then they're intimidated by people. And then I realized, like, I can do that. And that was a strength, and that was something good that I had to offer. So for me, once I started doing that, there was really no going back. I like that you said you had a voice, because it really was not just your voice. You had the voice of the peeps, 11 people, the people. or whatever it was, yep. that who were reporting to you. And they were relying on you to represent them at the executive table and convey 11 different ideas <laughs> in yeah. with one one voice so how how did that go for you like was it <laughs> you edit yeah <laughs> I promise to edit but yeah um, how did that go I felt it was a tremendous responsibility because I cared so very much about the people that reported to me I, they, I felt like they were my children I really did and I mean that in the most loving way not in a condescending way but in a loving way I really when someone was upset I was upset too if something happened at home, I wanted to hear about it. I was there with a tissue. I really genuinely cared about every single person that reported to me. Even if they didn't agree with me or I didn't like what they were doing at work, they were people and I cared about them. And I could feel that they respected me and they cared about me. So I felt this tremendous responsibility to represent them well at that executive table. So I would fight very hard. And I didn't fight to be right. I didn't fight to get a medal. I fought for them. Because I wanted to walk into a room and have them say, well, Melissa heard me, and I know she went up against the president and the owner of the company. I know she stood her ground because this is what has resulted. That was the victory, just being able to go in and fight for what you think is right. So I had tremendous care for the people I managed. I still do. Even at a company that I've only been there less than a year, there's just a bond that you get when you manage people. If you're doing it the right way, you're serving them, you should care that deeply about them pretty quick because they need you and they depend on you. And that bond only deepens over time, for sure. Did with you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was just sitting here thinking about how many times I've cried in front of you, that tears have come up in your eyes just hearing what I'm talking about or the things that we shared with each other. So how do you feel about being emotional and vulnerable and a manager in a workplace? You know, do you think, especially in financial services, that being emotional is something that's a detriment for a woman? Or do you think that's, um, you know, something that we should be that we should own and embrace. I think you own it, you embrace it, and be you. Going back to be you. So speaking of vulnerability, I had a a boss once who would ask me all about me, and I'd share, and then I'd say, so how's that going with you? Crickets, right? Never gave me anything back. And I thought, that's not right. If people are going to share with me, I'm going to share with them. 
and I've had many a times where I pulled out the tissue and I said, well, let me tell you what I've been through, and I've shared. I think being vulnerable makes you human. It makes you relatable. It bonds you to that person, and it's not, again, it shouldn't be anything contrived. You don't walk in and go, today I'm going to be vulnerable. Tomorrow I'm not. You just be you, and for me it was very natural to be vulnerable with somebody, and I didn't feel threatened by that. I never thought that for a second, that if somebody thought, well, geez, Melissa cried today, she can't do her job. No, I cry because I care so darn much about my job. And if that makes me whatever you're going to judge me and whatever label you want to give me, then I will own that every day of the week. So I don't apologize for any of that. I had an employee a couple weeks ago. Her dog passed away. Yeah. And, um, we've, we've been through that one, too. Been through that one, too. <laughs> and I cried in the office with her. And then I thought of my dog, and I was like, oh, my gosh. And I went home and hugged her really hard, and she was probably like, get away from me. <laughs> but, you know, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with showing her that you care? What's wrong with saying, you know what, why don't you take a little extra long lunch or go ahead and go home? I mean, why is that so bad? And if a man thinks that that's wrong, well, it's on them. So do you you have the same approach with when you were producing, when you had clients? Did you have the same approach, or were you just, were you all business all the time? Same approach. I've cried with many clients. There was one woman who, I remember she lost her husband, and I cried. I went to the funeral. Another one had just gotten diagnosed with, I think it was dementia, and I could see him deteriorating right in front of my eyes. I cried with them. I brought tissues out. and it's it, But then I'm smart enough to know that you have to turn the switch. So you can do that for a little while, but there is something that you need to accomplish as a professional, and that's your job to figure out at what point you turn that. But you own that. Because you're paddling the boat. Yeah, absolutely. They're They're looking at you. So I can't be a mess and go, oh, gosh, we got to end this meeting. I can't handle this. No, I'm going to cry with you, and then I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. And I think that's where you get the respect and the confidence. But it all bonds you. You have to show people you're human. Mm -hmm. I would never apologize for that. Yeah, it's going back to being you. That's it. I was that way the whole way through. And I will probably always be until my grave. I cannot imagine that you would just be Melissa forever and ever. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a better version is coming. I don't know. <laughs> it's pretty sad to start at this age. Um, okay, so let's talk about advice. Um, what's a piece of advice that you've received that was maybe good, a piece of advice that was bad, and what kind of advice would you give to other women in the industry, maybe who are just starting out or who are kind of struggling and are trying to find their, their voice and who they are in an industry that... Is male dominated still mm-hmm. to this day? I'm so much better at the latter part of the question. So I'll, get one, I'll get on to <laughs> you that. You start one. where you want to. Yeah, no, because then I won't get back to the first question you asked me. <laughs> so, if, what advice have I been given? And that's what's sad, not much. And I think that's really sad. Yeah. And that's a point I would love to have come through here that the best gift you can give someone is your honest feedback. And so many people are unwilling to give it. And to this day, again, something I just did very recently at work was after every presentation I make, I will say to somebody that I trust and respect, how did I do? And they'll say, oh, you did great. No, no. I want specific, what did I do great? What could I have improved upon? So that's what I do is I push everyone to do that with me. So it's really sad that when I sit here and I think about over my career, which is now over 20 plus years, I can't even answer that question. I think that's sad that I haven't had anybody who was that influential to me. I would say my father has probably been that person just by example, just watching him. He was a union leader. He was in the Marines, fought in Vietnam, was a union leader, worked seven days a week, very hard, got into an elected position, and I watched him work for his people, and I watched him fight literally for his people, and that always stuck with me. So I think that was with me a lot, but I never had a mentor. I never had anybody who said anything. 
I would always go into my performance reviews and I'm like, what can I do? Well, you're doing great. Horrible. So what advice would I give to people? Don't do that. You know, give people specific, measurable feedback if they ask for it. I do not give it if somebody doesn't ask me for it. That's not my place. If they report to me, that's different. But if they don't, I'm not giving it. So I do know when to shut my mouth (laughs) and go away. But I think what I would tell every woman is when you get into business, I don't care if it's your first day on the job, I don't care if it's your fifth year on the job, be fearless, be bold, be confident, and don't wait for anybody or anything ever. Do what you want, ask for it, be you all the way through. That should be a commercial. Be you all the way through. Yeah, that feels like a, it's your tagline. Yeah, <laughs> that's my tagline. That's so good. Some sort of feminine type uh, commercial. Yeah. Um, I'm dominating. Do you want to ask any questions? Yes, I do want to ask questions. Just, just elbow your way in. Um, <laughs> so, what's I'm gonna? I'm gonna skip around. So, um, we were just talking about how you didn't really have anybody to give you any advice. What's what's one thing that you wish you knew when you were starting out that you didn't know? She got you. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, you might have. Um, I think that the something that keeps sticking out to me is that the journey keeps changing. So don't ever think that you have figured it out because you never will. That's something I wish somebody would have told me because I always thought, okay, well, once I get to this point, I'm going to be really good. I didn't even know what that meant, you know? Now I'm managing people, and I got a promotion, and now I have this title, and it just keeps changing, so stop trying to figure it out. I would have loved if somebody would have told me that, and I'm not an over-planner. When we go on vacation, I do plan for those things, and everything's done, but I mean, I think in your career, you just can't sit there and have this plan all the time, because it's always going to get blown up. If somebody would have told me that a long time ago, I might have been more okay with the changes that ultimately came into my life. I had a very hard time and I resigned from my job. After 16 years, I left. It was my choice and I had a hard time with it. But if somebody would have told me years ago, there will be a day where you're going to leave your dream job and it's going to be okay and that's going to be the best thing that ever happens to you. I would have loved if somebody would have said that to me. Now, I'll be sure to tell the next person that, that like, hey, this is only one leg of the journey. The journey's long and just go with it all and be you all the way through. We have our tweet. <laughs> <laughs> we have our tweet. That is the tweet. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, you can have okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, let's see. You had said something that, that triggered a question for me, and now I should have written it down. Well, we'll go with this. What was something you failed at? My CFP exam. That was really hard for me because up to that point, I had taken two, three, four, maybe 11 tests and never failed one of them. None of them. So this came to, I know, it was ridiculous. I had a pretty good track. Like you study, you know, and you put the effort in and you pass. I never had an issue with that in my life. And I remember working and I was working full time and I was taking this test and I had so much coming at me. And I, I thought I studied well, but I failed. And I remember getting the results, which is like six weeks after you take the exam. So brutal. You just have to wait. And I was sitting at work right before I had to go into a meeting, and it said, fail. Didn't say, like, thanks for playing. You failed. You know, there's, <laughs> and the only other option was pass, and I didn't see the P for pass. And I was like, oh, and I started to cry. I'm like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. I was just crying at my desk. And I went into the mail room, and I'm like, and my boss, he came up, and he's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I failed. And he almost laughed at me. He was like, you failed the CFP final exam, two-day, 10-hour exam, you, you 
failed it, and I'm like, I failed, I did. He's like, it's okay. <laughs> He's like, it's okay. Like people fail all the time, and I'm like, yeah, people do not me. <laughs> like <laughs> not those people. <laughs> so I took the test again. I failed again. And let me tell you that part. I remember I had all this extra responsibility because I was good at what I was doing. I was getting pummeled. And that's another thing I look back on and reflect in my career is the competent get absolutely pummeled with work because you can. You can do it. You can handle it. People that are less competent, they have a great time at work because they're just not being given anything because so-and-so doesn't want to give them something because they know they're going to mess it up. But they're going to give it to you because they know you can handle it. And I remember being sick. I was just so stressed. And I was like, I know I'm going to fail this test. And I did. So that was real bad, right? I never failed once, but I failed twice. And I thought, okay, this is it. What am I going to do? I was like, I'm going to kick its butt. And then I did. And then I did. And it felt really good. But I guess another thing that I want to say is that we all remember the failures, but you don't remember the successes. If you ask me, how did it feel to get your promotion? I'd be like, it was great. But let me tell you how terrible it was when I failed my test, how much I cried, and how much I couldn't sleep those couple of nights. So when you fail, it's just something that you just... You remember? Mm-hmm. So that was an easy question. If you were to flip it and say, tell me about the greatest success you I'd have to, like, think about it. Yeah. Doesn't that say a lot about people, too? Well, especially when you are, things? yeah, and when you are somebody who is accomplished and can and is a, a can-do type of person, it's just sort of like, it's sort of like how you expect good customer service. You just mm-hmm. expect it. Like, yeah. you expect to do well at your project. You expect to have good rapport with your colleagues. Yeah. You, but so when those things don't happen, it really sticks out. It's like a shock yes. to the system. It is. Like, whoa, yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. that was very rude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, Derek, I don't fail. Fail? Like someone else. What, how do you pronounce this word? Yeah. <laughs> um, you survive. Yeah. Which is okay. Yeah. Now, see, like, I can laugh about this now, but I wasn't laughing in 2004 when I failed that. That was a long time ago. Yeah, 15 years wow. ago. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> scary. Wow. That is scary to do this much reflection. You guys are killing me. I know. It's wow. great, right? <laughs> I remember my question. Really I have a, a go ahead if you no, have a no, question. Go oh, good. So um, you had said something about how you were part-time with your two girls, and the company wanted you to come back and to manage, and... I don't know if your immediate response was, this is what I want, but you negotiated. And I feel that women in particular, not just in financial services, but in business in general, have a real problem with negotiating up yes, or asking for more. So what advice would you give to women on how to negotiate, how to know their worth, how to ask, when to ask? Like, what are those nuances? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you know how to navigate that? I don't know that there's a science I'm to it. Pay close attention. Here. Oh, good. <laughs> My boss is sitting right next to me, so oh, she's it's review time. Yeah, <laughs> it is review time. <laughs> I think, and, and this is something that I struggle with because it's so natural for me that I don't understand actually how it isn't for anybody. Like I don't get that. So it actually takes energy for me to understand why this is such an issue for women because I just don't get it. I think you are allowed to speak. You are allowed, and especially when you're being asked when someone says. So what do you think? You better walk in that door, and you better tell them what you think. You better know what you're going to say. And you better role play it out in your head, which I have done a million times. My car, my shower, and my dog. (laughs) Great listeners. Yes, um, because that's where my deepest thought is without distraction. Because somebody's not yelling, Mom, and, you know, all that other kind of stuff. So I just, I can't fathom why it's such an issue, But I and I don't know what people are afraid of. It's the same thing, like, What's the worst that's going to happen? Someone says no. 
Okay, and then you say, can you tell me why? And if you stay with open-ended questions back to your boss or back to the person, that'll tell you everything right there. Um, I've never been afraid to do that. As a matter of fact, I remember just back to the scenario where I was asked to come back. I came back into that meeting with a list of questions, and they both went, they weren't expecting that. They just wanted a yes or no and move on with their life, and I was like, no, no, no. This is a big decision for me. My life, my family, my husband, my kids, this is big. I want to make sure that I'm good. So now it was my turn. So I came with a lot of questions. And I remember at the time the owner, he just sat there and he was really impressed. And he really respected me for it. And I think that was a very good thing. So how could a boss not respect somebody who comes in prepared, professional, asks questions because they care? And then it's, it's very easy after that. If someone comes in and says, I want a $30,000 raise. And the boss says to you, why? And you don't have an answer for that? You shouldn't have asked. I would find that offensive as a manager. But if you walk in and say, look, I've been here for X amount of years. This is what I've been doing. This is how I spend my time. These are the projects I've taken on. And I believe that I'm worth this much. What do you think? And now it's all on them. So it's sort of like a courtroom. I equate my life to a courtroom a ton, which I don't know if that makes any sense. But I feel like I could have been a great prosecuting attorney in that I lay out all the facts. I take the time. I think about it research it, I role play it, and then I deliver, and I'm going to get that outcome that I want, because there won't be another outcome. I have to win that, because I've just laid everything out. How could you say anything else? So if you prepare, you're going to get what you want. If you think you're just going to go in and it's someone else's problem, that's poor negotiation, in my opinion. You can't put that on the manager, and you can't anticipate everything. Managers, I think that's another big thing that I feel pretty passionate about, is people think their manager should know everything. They should know everything about what they do, who they are, what they want, where they want to be. You're part of that decision-making process. You are in it together with your manager. If they're not listening to you, that's different. But that should be a two-way street. You're in charge of your own destiny, ultimately, not your manager, not anybody else. It's you. So once you figure that out, then it's much easier to go into the court of law and say, wow, I have to render this verdict on my future. Who better to argue it than you? Would you even want someone else arguing it for you? I certainly wouldn't. (laughs) I want to be in that courtroom trying to get the verdict that I want. I don't want to listen to someone else's. They can go sit on the bench. That's where I want to be. I'm thinking a lot about that. Yeah. The lawyer thing. Is that your second life? It could be, yeah. <laughs> Is that what you want to be when you grow up? Oh, maybe. I don't know. I'm watching so many documentaries that there's so many people I'd love to prosecute. They're so guilty. The Keepers, yeah. excellent one, by the way. I have not seen The Keepers. A nun gets killed, and it's all about the Keepers and the secrets, the cover-ups. Very hard to, to watch. The lack of justice, but I haven't come to the conclusion yet, so I have two episodes left. Did you watch Making a Murder? Of course. The first one. I haven't watched part two. I oh, you should watch part two. Really? Oh, since, you like, like, since you like this whole prosecuting, yeah. attorney, you need to see the defense okay. attorney that's All doing right. his case pro bono. She is something else. She's great. I've heard mm-hmm. about her, so maybe I will get that a shot. Yeah, that one's a good one. Anyway. All right. Sorry. <laughs> don't, mean to, don't mean to go on tangents here. <laughs> coming back, coming back. Jen, Jen, come back. I know you too. No, I'm okay with it. We want to be respectful of your time, so we've got we've got plenty. So, Alex, you have uh, yeah, I'm going to ask you about retiring. Mm. Do you plan on retiring? Absolutely. Uh, how do you what? When do you plan on retiring? You said you've been in in the industry for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a that's a long time. That's a, that's a good yeah a good portion old. of your life. Yeah, I wouldn't say old. I'd say seasoned. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll take you're that. Getting, you're getting some seasoning. All right. So if you are planning on retiring, when would you plan on retiring, and how do you feel about it right now? I feel good. 
I'd actually say I feel great because I balance my checkbook daily. I'm obsessed with money. It's all I've ever done. I know exactly what I have and exactly where it is every minute of the day. So I have a, a tremendous handle on my finances, both just for me personally as well as our family. My husband does what I do. He, I'm in management, but he has his own financial planning practice. So two of us together have planned really well. He is nine years older than me, and there will be a day where he will retire, and there's no way I'm sitting at home, or I'm going to be working full-time, and he's going to be golfing and having fun. <laughs> That's just not going to happen. And part of that, I say, is not from a jealousy standpoint, but it's from a living standpoint. You know, you, you do all this work, and you have all these experiences. You want to live. You have to live. Life's really short, and we've all buried people that were just too young. And you see it all the time, and, and I don't want that to be me. It will not be me. But I'm smart enough to know I have to work really hard to make that happen because, again, nobody's going to give me anything. I take that ownership. So I feel very good about that. I don't want to say when I'll retire in case my boss is listening. <laughs> Fair enough. She'll be like, what? <laughs> but in essence, I'd say a good 10-year plan from now. That would be an early retirement for me. I still think I would do something, but not at this level That's mm-hmm. that's very stressful. It's a big job. Remember, people don't pay you for nothing. Right. So when you get a big title, you get a big job, what people have to realize, that comes with a whole lot that they don't see. Mm-hmm. That comes with the subliminal stress and extra hours. And the weekends where you're thinking about work and the people, think about the people all the time. That's exhausting because I'll guarantee you nobody else is thinking about me. It's all true. So you said that you are obsessive about money mm-hmm. and uh, you, you, you balance your checkbook every day. What's what's something that you would say to um, like a twenty something person about money? Quit spending so much. I'm horrified <laughs> by what young people spend. I find it disgusting. Like on, for example, uh, spending money on Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're targeting you right now. <laughs> some sort of coffee that you could yes. make at home. Yeah. <laughs> have the best iPhone, why? Have to have an Apple Watch? Are you kidding? I mean, it's, I have to have everything. No, you don't. No, you don't have to have everything. You're literally carrying the same bags yes. as when yes. I first started at and the I job we worked at. This bag, as long as it's in good shape, I'll be there. But let me make one point, though. And this is interesting, because I'm not cheap. No, I'm not, you're not cheap. <laughs> not at all. Like, we, we live well, but we live within our means. And, and But I also don't budget. I don't overly budget. One thing that I've, I've lived by, and it served me very well, in financial advice, they tell you to budget. You know how exhausting that is to document everything yeah. you spend money on? But what I would do is I would set a limit in my checking account. So say that's like three grand, right? If I had $3,100, that $100 is going to savings. If I had $3,200, $200 is going to savings. I always want to have three grand. That was just where I was. But any extra dime was getting saved, not spent. Because the spending, you just can't seem to figure out. So I'm more intrigued by what people save than by what they spend. So I understand the idea of being young and having experiences and people saying, I want to do everything what before I you know, get married or have kids. I don't understand that philosophy. I worked my butt off, I saved, and then I had fun. And I think that's what the difference is. Everybody wants to have fun all the time. Well, when do you actually work? When are you going to really work hard? And I'll tell you, the best time to do that is when you're young. Because you will have fun because you'll be making more money when you're older, but you're not going to get to the higher position if you're not working. Mm -hmm. So I see that a little differently, but that's everybody's choice, and they can live however they want. But my husband and I have lived in a certain way, and we just bought an RV. That's a big... Congratulations. Thank you. That's exciting. 39 feet. Speaking of experiences, with your kids, how exciting. 
Yeah. Yeah, we're going to do lots of stuff. We go on a Disney cruise, so we're not cheap. And the stuff that we do is big. My favorite thing ever, Disney cruise. She's a Disney princess. Oh. Yay, I love Disney. So you can do those things, but you better have money in the bank. That's what I would always say. It's good advice. Yeah, most people don't like it, but yeah. <laughs> it's the, it's having experience the paradigm. I think it's interesting that you're saying people all want experiences; they want it now. And yeah, sure, I want I I want experiences too. But what about when I'm 50, 60, 70? Yeah, that mean that's you have to pay your future self. Yes. Your future self needs a salary, and that only comes from what you have now. If you don't want to work when you're 70, you yeah. better you better pay yourself now. And really think about what you need versus what you want. Mm-hmm. I, I have one purse that I use because I'm so lazy. I don't want to change my purses <laughs> at 6 a.m. Like, that to me is exhausting. Yeah. And again, going back to not caring what people think, if beige doesn't match with everything I have, then, you know, I can't help them. <laughs> to judge. But if, when that purse dies, I'll get another one, and it, that will suit me just fine. Why do I need five of those? Like, Why? I'd rather use that money and put it in the savings and let it grow so I can go do all the things I want to do later. Love it. Uh, too practical. <laughs> You're appropriately practical. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's get into how you perceive financial services. Do you feel that, first of all, do you feel having been in the industry for as long as you have that the industry has shifted? Do you feel that it's shifted enough? And where do you see us going? I think it absolutely has shifted. It has not shifted enough to where it needs to be in, in, a certain, in certain elements of that. Where it has shifted is it's benefited the consumer greatly. There are more options. There are cheaper options. There's more transparency. There's more information than ever. There's classes being taught in colleges now about balancing a checkbook and doing all those things. So financial literacy, financial wellness for employees at their companies. I think all of that is huge from where we were 20 years ago. I love all of that. Where the industry has still not gotten it right is we're still not, not reaching the youth the way that we need to because we get started even younger, even younger than when they get their first paycheck. That's too late. And that's number one. And number two is diversity, 100%. We are not supporting other areas of our world. We're just not. There's a whole segment of people that are not being talked to. And in this industry, it's still male-dominated. It is. I don't see, even within my own team, we are trying so hard. We can't get women. We can't get a resume from a woman. We have to hire the best candidate. But that bothers me because I'm thinking, well, why aren't women? This is a great job. Why wouldn't someone want to do this? What don't they know about it? How do we reach out to them to say these are great careers for you? And one of the questions I think you asked somewhere there is, what do you think is precluding women from getting in the industry or something? And yep. part of me thinks that they think of a little bit of the Wolf of Wall Street, right? That you have to be in the end in a suit. You have to work incredibly long hours. That could be true, but not always true. So I'm just not sure what's stopping women, but I really think we've got a lot to offer in this industry. There's so many different things you can do when you think about finance. It could be banking. It could be financial planning. It could be, look at the work you're doing. You're supporting those who are dealing with the financial analytics. There's so much you can do. So I'm just frustrated because we're not breaking through that enough. So the pool of candidates that you're looking at isn't diverse enough. It's not that necessarily when you're hiring that you're not hiring with diversity in mind. It's that you can't even get a pool of that candidates that's diverse enough. That is correct. To be able to hire a diverse group of people. Yes. You'd be shocked. Yeah. I don't have any resumes from women. And I've probably hired 
in maybe four or five positions so far in a year. Mm -hmm. And I would have loved to have had diverse candidates, and I just don't have them. So as much as we want to be this diverse organization, we can only do so much with that when we don't have the candidates coming through. So I think networking, building a bench, helping women rise up, that's where you want to be. I think your point about reaching out earlier, so you were really thinking more about the consumer side, but I think even just from a business perspective as well, helping women and people of color understand that they are welcome and that there is a place for them is super important early. And to help them understand that, um, you know, for me personally, I'm not driven by money. My husband is driven by money. He's in sales. He will sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves, which is my favorite quote from Tommy. Oh, that's a lot to digest. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy boy. Oh, my gosh. He's just, it's, it's in his blood. It's what he does really well. I can't do that. Um, but when I talked to you and other financial advisors, I learned really quickly that being a financial planner isn't just about, you know, growing people's money. You're a financial planner, you are a counselor, a psychologist, a marriage counselor, sometimes a drug counselor for parents with children who are having who are struggling with addiction. I mean it's just it's a very it can be a very emotional kind of a, a role that growing people's money is just such a small segment of what breeds success. Yes. Right? So, like, helping people ends up being the ultimate success. Look at me. I came mm-hmm. full circle. I wanted to be a teacher. I am a teacher. I just don't teach in a traditional way that you would think in a classroom. I teach clients. I've done that for many years. Now I teach my peers how to teach their clients. And then you teach other managers how to manage. So, all the teaching that I've ever wanted to do, I'm doing. If you think about social work, I think that's another one that hits on the emotionality of the job. And I don't know that what social work pays as a career, I have to believe finance would pay a lot more. But if you have empathy, true empathy, not fake, but true empathy, you care about people and you want to help people, this is a great industry. I'm on the institutional side, so we help nonprofits with their missions and with their organizations. I mean, that is, again, a different level of teaching and decision-making you're presenting to boards, not individuals. So I'm not sharing Kleenexes with any of these folks, like the emotionality that you do one-on-one, but you're helping these folks complete their mission for their organization. That's pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot that we could teach people about financial services. And, you know, you mentioned FI360 and what we do here. It's not immediately, you know, first-tier financial services, but we're offering support to yes. financial services. And we do that through education. We do that through software development. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're really a software company. Um, and then on the marketing side, which is, you know, my, my passion, um, we get to do really, really fun things and be very creative in an industry that n- most people don't think of as a creative industry. So we really get to stand out in the work that we do because yeah. it's really different from what other people see. So I agree with you. Yeah. There's a lot that we can do, I think, to help propel the industry forward. I hope so. Keep yeah. going. Maybe <laughs> more. We will. Yeah. Keep sharing what, That's you're, right. what you're doing. Um, okay. So there was something else I was going to ask. I need to write these things down. I'm just like listening to you going, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, do you have any uh, unstoppable women in your life? If so, tell us about those women. Yeah. yeah. Unstoppable. I think of probably my favorite, one of my favorite women on the planet. 
she's in her 70s, and every time I look at her, I think like she's just my age. So she doesn't age to me at all. She's really smart, but she's very kind. She's very well off, but she's very humble. She's worked her butt off. She's transitioned a family business to her children. Her, th- her three children, I know two of them, one has since passed, but those people, those children are amazing. And when I look at her, I think, man, how did she do this with her kids? Like, they are such incredible people, and that dynamic that they have <clears throat> as a family and how she stepped away from the business and has let them run it, I respect her immensely. I admire her. When I was going through my job transition, I shared so much with her because I respected her and wanted to hear what she thought and you know, if I was going to be okay. And she went through so many things that paralleled to where I was at certain points in life. So I really appreciated her listening to me and giving me advice. But I'd say she is one fierce, unstoppable person, but always has a smile, huge sports fan, just really an awesome person. It's almost like if you asked me who I would want to be, it would be her. She's got it all. And she's done it with tremendous um, humility throughout her whole life. She's just awesome. So true measure of the mom is how their kids turn out. So I've got some ways to go, right, with my kids before I know if I've been successful in that area. But that's the greatest gift you can leave behind is a legacy of two daughters that have grown up confident, strong, successful, independent, fierce, and hopefully unstoppable. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Remember my question. Oh, good. <laughs> I jotted it down so I wouldn't forget. Um Maternity leave. Were you prepared for maternity leave? Did you know what to expect? And what sort of advice would you give to women? I just, I feel like when I approached maternity leave, I was completely ill-prepared. I didn't understand it. And I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm not the anomaly. You, so. you didn't understand it from what perspective? I didn't understand that I just, that I wasn't paid for 12 oh, weeks. The financial aspects of The financial it. aspects of it, the time off. Yeah. yeah. Um, that your job isn't necessarily your job. Uh, you know, if you... I get you. You know, the whole... I yeah. just don't know that women understand it. They get pregnant first and then ask questions later. Right. Um, so I'm just curious how you approached maternity leave and um, were you prepared and, and have you witnessed anybody struggling with that once they hit childbearing years? Like, what are the challenges... And so what advice would you give to younger women who are approaching, you know, time to build a family and they're just not quite sure what they're supposed to do? Yeah, I was very prepared because, again, going back to the whole I'm on top of my money thing since it's what I've done, I knew exactly how it was all going to work because I asked a lot of questions. I did my homework going back to the courtroom thing. I had everything lined up. I knew. And what was so funny is I will still say to this day that the best best time of my life was pushing my daughter, my first daughter, through the neighborhood. I was at my happiest in my whole life at that moment because I still had a job that I was going to go back to. I had a supportive and loving husband. I just brought this amazing little girl into the world who, thank God, was healthy. And I was so proud of her and I was so excited to do that. And that was the happiest time of my life. It was the calmest I've ever been. It was the happiest I've ever been because that became my job, my number one job. Everything else fell away. I didn't look at emails, really, for those three months. I didn't think about work very much. I just thought about her the whole time. And that's, like, you'll never get that back. Now, when my second daughter came, 
my first daughter didn't want anything to do with her, so it wasn't quite as magical. So it takes <laughs> you're not getting the tears no, now. It takes nothing <laughs> away from how special and wonderful she is. But that first, that first, it was just a new ex- experience for me. I was like, is it okay to be this happy? Is this normal to be this happy? To just look and be like, oh my god, this is everything you've ever wanted, and it's right here in this moment. So be smart enough to see it, recognize it, and clearly appreciate it because you can see how it has affected me. She's my daughter, Casey, is turning 11 today. It's her birthday. Oh, so that's happy birthday, Casey! Happy birthday, birthday. Casey. <laughs> and Alexa is a St. Patty's Day baby, a uh-huh. March 17th baby. So you just think about those moments as you get older, and that's what's most important. But what I also will share is right when I was ready to come back from maternity leave in 2008, do you know what happened? September, right around August, September of 2008. You mm-hmm. two were very young. Tara's nodding her head. It's when the financial markets crashed. And I remember calling my parents. I was part-time, and I was like, you got to take the baby because I have to go talk clients off the ledge. So I didn't have time to come back into a nice transition into work. I was thrown into a hot mess, and it was absolutely terrifying. And I'm really glad that I went through all that, but I was not sleeping. I was with my daughter who did not sleep for like four years. I'm not even kidding you. So it was really tough at home. I was really stressed. So I didn't have a... a gentle re-entry into the workforce and maybe that was okay because again it teaches you a lot toughens you up hardens you um so i hope i've answered your question i might have just went off in a different direction there well what's what's one thing that you would recommend to a young woman approaching her her you know who wants to start a family and maybe doesn't know how to prepare for being out of the workforce like what's the one thing that she should assess before finances, finances, finances. It costs a lot of money to have a baby. It just does. So you better think about daycare. If you are going to go back to work, does it really make sense for you to go back to work? Can you go and negotiate and ask your employer to go part-time, which is what I did. And I remember being very nervous when I asked that, but I wanted it so badly. And he said yes. And it made such a difference for me for four years when I was part-time. So you have to think about that. And you need to probably have a very honest conversation with those around you. That includes whoever's helping you raise your child, whether that's spouse, partner, whomever, parents. I remember asking my mom and dad while I was pregnant, when this baby comes, because I didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl, so when the baby comes, how do you think you'd be able to help? What do you think you'd be able to do? Having that honest conversation and having them say to me, we got you for two days a week. Like, I needed to know that, right? But if I didn't ask them, I wouldn't have known. So it's planning for all those things way before. And then the other thing I'd say is, after you do all that, then you have to stop worrying, and you have to just be in the moment and enjoy it because you'll never get it back, no matter what, no matter how many kids you have. You'll never get that, those moments back, so you have to not put so much pressure on yourself. The rest will work out, but you try to line up as much as that as you, uh, that you can, for sure. Is there anything that you want to leave us with? Mm-hmm. Any last thoughts or anything we didn't cover? I would just say, you know, it's a shame to watch women not feel that um, they should have a seat at a table with other people or to, to think that they are so nervous about having such basic conversations with people. I just worry about that. I feel for that generation of women. Um, they just need to be fearless, right? Be confident. Run. Everybody that works for me, and I don't even like to say that works for me, works with me, that I deal with, I always tell them run. And I know I've said that to you in the mm-hmm. past. Just run. And don't worry about it. And if you fall, we'll talk about it, and I'll pick you back up. But run. 
And if you need me, I'm always here. But you're going to find that you don't need me very much. You're going to need me in the way that you didn't think you would. And the way you're going to need me is just because you want to tell me what you're doing. And I think that's really cool. And I'd love to see more women in management at high executive positions changing, making differences in cultures, saying that it's okay to have a family and to work. I get asked the question all the time, is your life, how do you keep the balance? I don't. And I've come to terms with that, and I never will. If I want to be a good mom and I want to be a good executive, then they, those two things will never align. So I've almost equated my life to a seesaw that sometimes children and my family will take precedent and other times work will, and I won't apologize or feel guilty on either side. I'm, I'm not doing that to myself anymore. I felt guilty all the way through. From the minute I was pregnant, I felt guilty. Why? I don't know why, so I stopped doing that, but it probably took me like a decade to get there. So I'd love to shorten that journey for other women to say, don't put so much pressure on yourself. Enjoy the journey, enjoy the ride, make it your own, and make it your own path, and nobody's going to do it for you. So you better do it on your own. I don't rely on anybody for anything. My husband is my rock. He listens to me. He helps me. When I was leaving my last job, he said, don't even take another job. Just come home. I mean, who does that, right? It was the best thing I ever did. I just went home, got a puppy, took a walks, noticed things I hadn't even ever noticed before, got to be a mom, and then I was ready to go back to work, and he supported me there, too. How long did you take off between, between jobs? A little over a year, and that was the best thing I ever did. I would not have been good for my next employer. I wouldn't have been ready to do that. I needed to really leave everything that I had behind and kind of re-energize and refocus and get back to me and leave some of the things that I just needed to leave behind just to leave them. Mm-hmm. And that felt really good to do that. Thank you for spending your time with us. Again, this is a little louder now by the Bridge Initiative. Thank you to Melissa for sharing some lessons about navigating your career, prioritizing your family, and staying true to who you are. We hope you enjoyed getting to know her. Stay tuned for more podcasts featuring great women from financial services talking about a variety of topics. If you'd like to catch up on what we've been doing, if you have questions, topic ideas, or if you'd like to join the Bridge Initiative community, you can visit fi360bridge.com to check out previous podcasts, webinars, and blog posts. Email us at bridge at fi360.com and connect with us on Twitter at fi360bridge. You can also support the podcast without spending a dime by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we want you all to get a little louder now.